ready in Lexington. I am. Yes, sir. I am. I am. I am. Welcome back to the Savage Cromcast, your favorite Weird Tales podcast on the internet, a universally beloved form of audio entertainment. Uh, we, we are your three hosts for the evening. My name is Jonathan. Oh, my name is Josh. And, and, and I'm Luke. And you can hear it in the, in, the, in the background, kind of a Doppler sound maybe, kind of a Doppler effect to it, like a toot toot. We're talking tonight about a Manly Wade Wellman story. It's called Little Black Train, which I have had the toughest time with because my brother-in-law likes to sing a song all the time called Long Black Train, which is like a modern country song, and I keep calling this this story that. It's it's all derived from this, dude. Like it's all interrelated, man. There we go. Yeah, is that a? Josh Groban? Is that who that is? I, I couldn't speak to the veracity of that statement, but I will trust okay. you. Neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> nope. I just know that Kyle goes, long black train. Does, the, <laughs> does Josh Groban have a really deep voice? I don't know. That sounded like The Undertaker. Yeah, maybe it is. He does like wrestling as well. Yeah. Are you excited to talk about the, the little black train tonight, fellas? I am. I am for sure. Ghost trains are are really fascinating to me Um, and stories about ghostly apparitions and and phantom rail cars. Man, that that stuff, uh, I don't know, it gives me it gives me the creeps a little bit and it really captures my imagination. Is that part of why you chose this as the as one of the stories in your season list? That is solely why I chose this (laughs) uh, to include in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But from the synopsis that I read. Um, it sounded really, really neat. And I think that it's one of the stories that our pal Bobby D, um, recommended. Cool. I hope that we'll dig into it a little bit more about what it is that you love about, about phantom trains and phantom modes of transportation, perhaps. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Do you like like ghost big rigs and stuff? Uh, yeah. Ghostly semis. Sure. Okay. Um, ghostly, uh, uh, chariots and carriages. Are pretty interesting. Okay. The the trains. I, I think trains are where it's at, and I have, I have some reasons. <laughs> All right, I'm, I look forward to hearing about those reasons. Do we have any banter or discourse or things that we want to open the show with before we get into some of the like the one thing and th- and such? I don't I don't think we're supposed to do banter anymore. No, can't do that, man. All banter is canceled. Yeah. <laughs> our our backers on Patreon don't like it. Oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> we're punk rock. You don't pay That's for right. this. You don't have to listen to anybody we'll talking about we Amazon during the show. <laughs> this shit is free. <laughs> I love that you just uh, took the the clap emojis and just dropped them into I actual. That's the way. That's the way it sounds. I acted it out. I'm, clap, I'm clapping back. This is a subtweet. <laughs> and if you're listening, you know who it's directed toward. <laughs> uh. Do you want to do one thing? Let's are do we it. We, well, what are what are we what are we what are we imbibing? Oh snap! I forgot about the drinking part. Luke Luke got some uh, some bottles, some growlers. He was howling Man, about his growlers. I, I was howling for my growlers. I went to uh, to Dreaming Creek today after like Tuesdays are my days. I say it's the day that I can use three monitors. I go I go onto campus and I try to get stuff out uh, just to to put a time and place. In things we're in the middle of may 
in 2020 amidst the uh, the COVID world. That's what we're all living through. And so, uh, yeah, so so Tuesdays I go on the campus. I've got my laptop and I plug it in. I've got a couple monitors and I can get like three times the work done in the same work day. That's how I think about it. I don't know if that's totally true, but I do. I, I am able to do more with, with multiple monitors. And so I was able to stop by Dreaming Creek and pick up some growlers. And so I picked up two growlers. I only brought one upstairs with me, uh, but I picked up two of their uh, their 1792 Kentucky Common, which I've drank many times on the show, I think, at this point. But it's just a good old cream ale, and it's pretty, it's pretty easy drinking. And so... That's what I'm doing. Right, her. Yeah. I got a got a growler of a Kentucky beer. Yeah, buddy. What, a, what about uh? What about have, you, Josh? Wait, does it have the Kentucky I've... Proud sticker on it? Uh, it doesn't. I put oh, a man. sticker on this growler, though. It's it is uh uh the sticker is uh, a Florida bonneted bat, a flying squirrel, a star nosed mole, and a spotted skunk because. Wow. That was uh, a sticker from the last uh, sort of like southeastern regional mammal meeting that we had, which was down in Georgia, and it was a, it was it was way down deep south. Actually, I guess it's not a Florida bonneted bat. I guess it's probably a hoary bat. It's a it's a Lazarus bat for sure. But anyway, that bat looks hoary to me. It's a, it's a bunch of cool weirdo like southeastern mammals. And it's a psychedelic kind of sticker. We had a bunch of these done, and I love them. I think they're the coolest stickers we've done. But, you know, I've got these these cheapo plastic growlers that I've accumulated. I'm just sticking stickers on them so I know which one. I'm not going to confuse them with, like, giving them away or anything. But just so I know, like, that growler's this and that growler's that. I need, a little, I need a little identifiers on them. Star-nosed mole is maybe the most Lovecraftian mammal, wouldn't you say? Like, is is there one that's more? Maybe the platypus. Naked crazy, mole Naked mole rats. Yeah, you're right. Cats in general? <laughs> Cats in general. Yeah, yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> Mammals. Yeah. It's cool. I love it. We got some we got some funky ass mammals here in Kentucky, man. We got some funky ass mammals in eastern North America. We ought to be proud of our mammals. Like the three of us. Yeah. I got that that that, that big mammal energy. BME. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to like slow pitch it. Josh, what are you drinking? I am drinking one of my brown ales that I made uh, that's been in the bottle for a while. Uh, they they just keep getting better and better with with age. And I also am supplementing that with some Trader Joe's Kentucky Bourbon, which uh, is a fifteen dollar bottle. I've mentioned it I think before on the show, and it's not my favorite. I wouldn't say. Um, but it, it tastes okay. Uh, I think that it probably, I'm not sure actually, I think it comes from the 1792 distillery. Um, it says bourbon square distilling company in Louisville, Kentucky, but I think that that is the 1792 distillery. Okay. Yeah. So it's good. It's fine. It's kind of young, a little bit bitter, not as sweet as, uh, some of the other cheaper bourbons you can get like the, uh, the heaven Hill, but it's okay. And it's in your How about belly. you, John? It's, oh, it's uh, yeah, I'm filling my belly with it. <laughs> I had what I, I'm going to start calling a Doctor Luke. I think it was half bourbon, half Lacroix lime. Oh yeah, <laughs> how you like them highballs, dude? I, no, it's a do, it's a Doctor Luke. That's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> <laughs> like Doctor Pepper. It's good. It's good stuff. 
it, it's dangerous. I could see where you could get messed up on that pretty quick. That pre- previous episodes are a testament to that. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's there, but it's so good because you can just you can just keep on drinking the bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it I don't know. Those crazy kids in the twenties and the thirties, they had it figured out about them highballs. Yeah, see? <laughs> you do you do half your spirit, see? And then you mix in a little bit of the tonic. Yeah. For some reason know. that sounded like a train magnate to me. <laughs> <laughs> you better be selling your house to me, see? The train's coming through here. There's there's explicitly a highball glass, right? Yeah. Like a Tom Collins, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a Tom. Okay. It's it, it's like that's what that is, yeah. Like the the sort of like uh, straight edged but tall, like ten to sixteen ounce kind of glass, yeah. Welcome to glasscast. Yeah, I I think glassware is kind of cool, but you know, there's nothing that's going to beat like a rocks glass. Just like the the firm the the firm thick bottom of a rocks glass. That's what I like. Thick. We match, Josh. <laughs> yeah, we have the Two same three wild turkey glass. That's right. That was good. That was good banter. I, I would rate that banter as uh, six out of ten. <laughs> good, but not great. Five out of five. Would write again. I was a little shrill. <laughs> <laughs> you should try smiling more. I should. <laughs> Get us out of here, John. Okay, uh, let's, let's play us into the one thing. One thing. All right, for one thing tonight, I'm going to start. If we're going clockwise, my good friend Josh is going to lead us off in one thing. Okay. Um, I bought a video card that fits into my computer and it is a uh, MSI GTX 1650 um, with four gigabytes of graphics processing power. And I used my stimulus money to buy that. So I gave it to Jeff Bezos, I, whatever. I, if you, if you're a multi-billion trillionaire, does a, another 150 bucks matter? I, I don't know. Um, but I bought this graphics card and plopped it into my computer today, and it runs Skyrim at uh, 60 frames per second with ultra high settings on, uh, which is real, real good. And I stood on top of a. I stood on it top sounded of a, way more sophisticated when you started out, and you got it looks real, it's real, real good. good. It looks real good. I like uh, the way it feels on my eyeballs. I did. I stood on top of a mountain and watched the sun go down in Skyrim. Uh, and you could see for miles because my old video memory was on board and, and, uh, it adds this fog, right? This artificial fog so that, you know, it doesn't bog your video memory down. And so you can actually play the game and move around and stuff. But now you can see the horizon and I've never seen, I've never seen Skyrim look like this before. This keep in mind, this is a game that came out in 2011, maybe. Yeah. 2012 i i don't know some something like that um but my god it is still one of the prettiest video games i've ever played in my uh, in my whole life and i'm i'm still in love with it and it's like we've rekindled our romance <laughs> am i supposed to it's write like, down skyrim or that the graphics card? <laughs> pretty graphics i don't know uh i i, I think it's just uh 
I think it's Skyrim with with better graphics. I guess I'm really excited. I'm really excited to play this game and be able to see as like see it as the developers intended it to be seen. I guess I'm not sure if that's an accurate statement. It's ultra high settings, so maybe they're making it for people who can run it on medium, and that's the average. But my god, um, it it looked beautiful. So having this kind of uh, better graphics card, does that impact like if you were to be playing, you know, something that doesn't have the, the crazy graphics? Does, does that kind of uh, souped up visual like influence gameplay? Otherwise, like, does it allow you to do anything else? Not really. It it doesn't really change the graphics on a game that doesn't require high end graphics cards. And it doesn't change um, like the speed of like uh, you know, button mashing that kind of control. I don't think so. It might load quicker. You know, if I'm playing Super Meat Boy, the level isn't gonna run any faster, but uh right. when I when I die and have to restart, it's maybe gonna load a, a second or two faster. Okay. Um, yeah. So because it can fit more uh, into the 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 memory that it, that is on board on the graphics card, and it's not pulling resources away from the computer to run, you know, video. So, uh, but the thing I'm really excited about is um, just trying out some of these games like Fallout Three, uh, Skyrim, even uh, Oblivion, the Elder Scrolls before Skyrim, um, with with graphics kicked up a notch. So cool. I've, uh, I've moved into a new, the, the modern era of video gaming, uh, the PC master race. And, uh, <laughs> uh maybe this is, maybe this is the new me. Have you tried on it? I have Minesweeper. Yeah. Like where you click the grid and yeah. maybe it's, but maybe it's a number. Yeah, I yeah. haven't. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to share my screen and we'll do a let's play. <laughs> Dude, there's like sandworms. They're gonna jump out oh, of the I mines. <laughs> I don't have. I actually don't have Minesweeper on this computer. I don't think it's good anymore. I think you have to. It's it. not. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, my one thing is video games. <laughs> right on. That brings us to Luke. Okay, okay you're uh, next. So, so my one thing is, uh, I guess it's it's. It's not, it is one thing. It is the two-volume set of the first World Fantasy uh, uh, Awards and then the World Fantasy Awards Volume 2. And I guess my other one thing would be A-Books because I just can't quit you, A-Books. I'm, I'm on you every day. I think I have at this point maybe – I have two books that are in the mail. Uh, they're just – Really? Yeah, I do. Uh <laughs> I have like a. It's good. It's a good thing to support. Yeah, that's a good thing. No, I'm yeah. not criticizing. I yeah. just I usually you tell us when you've bought a book, and I didn't know that yeah, you. Well, I, I, I knew about those other two. So I I purchased uh, the year's best uh, horror stories volume nine, uh, which has a uh, like that's the second volume edited by uh, Carl Edward Wagner, but it has a Ted Klein story in it. So I, I found that and I got it for cheapies under five. And then uh, so I just got that yesterday. But then I also have uh, two other books that are in the mail. Uh, one is the Lynn Carter uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's not a Ballantine. Uh, it's not part of the adult series, but it came out 
concurrent with that, but it's his like uh, commentary on the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work. So I found that for cheap and I picked that up. And then, uh, and then I've got something else. Oh, like a Lovecraft anthology that Tor did like in 1994 or something like that. Anyway, so I've got a couple books on the way, but all that is to say, a books. I, I I keep going to a books and I keep like I keep looking around. But I found uh, when I was looking for Manly Wade Wellman books uh, because they are incredibly hard to find. If you want to find a, a Silver John or John the Balladeer collection, you are paying twenty bucks for a beat up old paperback, and that's the best of situations, generally speaking. Uh, but his stuff can be collected otherwise. So like in the world fantasy awards volume two, I picked this up for less than five bucks. It's got a couple manly Wade Wellman stories in it. Uh, the ghastly priest doth rain as well as, no, it just says that one. Uh, so he's in here, but he's also in the, the first one too. Uh, but anyway, like, like this is a cool collection. It basically commemorates maybe the first four or five years of the world fantasy awards. There's all kinds of crazy extra stuff. There's essays. There's uh, the, the opening first page of the first collection has uh, a map that's called the Providence of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And it has a real map of Providence, but also place settings of his different stories that are, that are happening there. Cool. It's just, it's just cool. It's like a, it's a seventies anthology that has just all kinds of extra, extra stuff. So I found that one for relatively cheap. And then I found volume two for, for legit cheap. It's hard to find the first volume for less than maybe 15 bucks. Uh, but the second one you can still get for five or 10 as of the time of this recording. Uh, so was that a collection or was that a, a, a the two volume set? that you knew about before from, from other sources and uh, just run across those. No, on I just, I just, I just ran across volume two on mm. a books. Uh, when I was searching for manly Wade Wellman. And so I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag with our listeners. Like there's a couple good sources to find out about old paperbacks. One of which we've mentioned on the show before is too much horror fiction. If you're into horror stuff, uh, like that, that blog is, is, is totes legit. And there's all kinds of great information there about expanding your, your horror collection. Uh, you know, whether it's the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or even like older than that, like dating back to the weird stuff from the thirties, there's all of that that you can find there. So that's a good source, but also, uh, the Blackgate uh, blog has a long and storied history of, of posts, but specifically if you search for anything that's tagged vintage treasures, mm-hmm. they have all kinds of crazy reviews of like paperbacks. And so oftentimes when I'm interested about something, if I if I go to the Black Gate and I look for it, I'm able to find it. And so sure enough, like the Black Gate had a great uh, post that talked about these two different anthologies and had a bit more information beyond what I could see. And that was a great way to kind of like figure out that, Hey, yeah, I want to snag these things real quick. And I guess the final thing that I'll mention is a website. And again, this is stuff that people that are listening may already know about, but there's, there's a website that's called ISF 
dbb.org, the -hmm. Internet Speculative Fiction Database, which is a great authoritative resource. It's kind of the Howard works for like everybody. If you want to find out how many times uh, a Ted Klein story has been anthologized, you can click on that story and see where it all appears. Or if you want to see like how many variations of the year's best fantasy stories that Lynn Carter volume did, you can click on it and see, you know, it's, it's a great resource too. Awesome. So, yep. That's cool. That's, (laughs) I've been been hanging around on a books the last few days as well, kind of in relation to my one thing. So it's actually kind of a good transition point. Nice. I will hand, I will hand the stick over. Please Uh, tell us about your one thing. Hanging around, (laughs) hanging around down at the a books docs. Just like, just looking for uh hey hey you got any paperbacks on that frida uh yeah no my my one thing is a fantagraphics books uh collection called the life and times of scrooge mcduck i got volumes one and two over christmas it's kind of a box set josh you're making a cool face have you heard of this I just like Fantagraphics, oh. and I think that they, it's a great company. Fantagraphics is awesome. They have a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I just love all the books they come up with, and if I had unlimited Bezos money, yeah, I would be spending a lot of time on their website. <laughs> uh, but this is by Don Rosa, a fellow Kentuckian, if I'm allowed to count myself as one. Is that okay, Josh? Yep. Okay, cool. Yep, you're adopted. <laughs> you're both, you both are. Cool. <laughs> Uh, Don Rosa <laughs> is one of the like probably two most famous creators on Scrooge McDuck and Donald Duck. And he had this story that he created, The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck. It's a 12-part miniseries that he did, I think, over the early 90s, like late 80s, early 90s. And it's all about taking the stuff that was dropped as hints and little dribs and drabs here and there by the most famous Duck creator, which is Carl Barks. And he sort of congealed it into this miniseries where he really fleshed out the backstory for Scrooge McDuck. It's really cool. Uh, it's like this really nice adventure serial pulp. If you like DuckTales or Donald Duck or any of that sort of edge of Disneyana, I think that you would really enjoy it if you can get your hands on it. This newest collection is still expensive. It's like a $40 box set and I think like 20 or $25 a piece for the individual volumes. But it's way better than the previous editions, which I think run for like 50 or 60 bucks on eBay and a books and places like that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I had a I had one volume of it in the old version and it was a library copy I'd found on eBay and I got it for like 35 and it was a steal. But now that I have this new Fantagraphics one, I sold that one off and it's just really neat stuff. Uh, it's really well illustrated, really interesting story set in the Yukon and all around the world and and Java, and all kinds of places. The first volume collects that 12-issue series. The second collection is some of the B stories, as Don Rosa calls them, and a few other things that he's written about Uncle Scrooge, it sounds like. Um, But that first volume, I finished it the other day, and I've been getting into the second volume. Uh, The first volume, I was hooked from beginning to end. It was really awesome. And I don't know, are you guys Scrooge McDuck fans? Are you Duck Stuff fans? Or... (laughs) Uh, definitely DuckTales. Yeah. I, I, I was maybe, uh, eight or nine when DuckTales, uh, the, the original animated cartoon started airing. So I was like prime age, maybe even a little bit younger than that. Um, and 
I that was my introduction to it. I never really got into the comics until a little bit later. Um, but I even like the resurgent, like the the new uh, Ducktail series. I think it's I think it's great. I, I think, think it's it super your, smart and funny. I think it was your one thing, like maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago or something. It, w- it was about a year ago because we Ashley and I got YouTube TV so we could watch March Madness. There you go. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and I ended up watching uh, Disney Channel was one of the channels that we got, and I ended up just <laughs> like you you have unlimited DVR with with YouTube TV, so I just. DVR'd all of the DuckTales and, and watched them. I liked, I liked it a lot. So what I've, I've watched DuckTales with my daughter over the last quarantine or so, I, if that's a measure of time at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she got really into it as well. And that was sort of what led me to be like, oh, I got this for Christmas. I should pick it up and read it. And it's really quite – it's amazing the stuff that they've taken seemingly from the comics and matriculated into that show. So it seems like it's really faithful to some of the creator's uh, of the past that have kind of come up with that McDuck history. Um, cool. I, I've been tickled to see that. So yeah, that's, that's my one thing for the week. Nice awesome. man. That's three good things. Hey, before we continue, uh, can I spend, can I take us down like a 10 minute, um, diatribe? Can I can I get some bourbon first and then listen? To of course, of course. Yeah, you'll you'll need it. Okay. You'll need it. Uh, yeah, go. All right. Three, I'm curious. I'm curious to hear what Josh is going to say. Two, yeah. One. <laughs> diatribe life. It's it's less of a diatribe and more of a tangent. So I'm going to share my screen. Let's see. Are you guys seeing this? We are. <laughs> right. Okay. I said this to Luke earlier, but uh, it might be fun to play this. So uh, I've been thinking about a segment for the show that we could do periodically called This or That. And it turns out that today, uh, surreptitiously, I found a link on my morning internet sojourn uh, for a website called Antidepressants or Tolkien, where uh, it's a quiz and you're presented with a word and you have to decide if it's an antidepressant or if it's a name from Tolkien's large body of fantasy works. And uh, Luke is taking this quiz. John, you haven't read very much Tolkien. Is that true? That is absolutely true. Have you seen any of the movies? I've seen the movies. The, or the, okay. Or the Rings movies right. So you're at least familiar with like the, the names and the sounds of the names and, and stuff like that. Okay, so here's what I propose we do. I'll post this link in the show notes so people can can play as well. But uh, and I think this randomizes each time. So let's do three of these okay. before before we move on with the show content. Um, I'll ask you, uh, and you can see the the spelling of the word, and I'll ask you: Is it Tolkien or antidepressants? And the word is Edronax. That's an antidepressant. Okay, antidepressant. And you are correct. Sold under the brand name Edronax. It's Robexatine. Um, all right. It's a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor marketed as an antidepressant for use in the treatment of major depression. Oh. Next is Elendil. Is it still me or is Luke t- tagging in on this one? Uh, Luke, Luke's going to know. Oh, okay. Because uh, he took the quiz today. That's, that's a Tolkien. Elendil is Tolkien. Correct. Elendil, also known as Elendil the Tall, uh, being the tallest of men who escaped the downfall, and also known as Elendil the Fair. So he was fair and he was tall. Also, my, okay. 
also my nickname. Yeah. You're two for two. This if you if you get this one, you get the three for three Tolkien bonus. And the word is Narmasil. Narmasil. It's almost a Garfield character. Uh, so it, uh, it is. I'm going to go with Tolkien because Tolkien. Davis and Tolkien are like they're, they're brothers in arms, right? Tell me about Narmasil, the Tolkien character. <laughs> Narmasil, the Tolkien character. Um, he is a dragon. Uh, not one uh-huh. of like, the good dragons. Narmasil has a cave full of yarn. That he protects okay. from pillaging dwarves. Okay, Narmasil, the uh, yarn-obsessed dragon. Yep. You're correct, except it's not a dragon. <laughs> he was the 17th king of Gondor after the death of his fa- father, Atanavar uh, II. Narmasil II was the 29th king of Gondor and the son of Telumathar. I would like to say that my version is better, and that is very Old Testament-y, like who begat who. Uh, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was fun. <laughs> Do I get a special match? That was fun. You nailed it. Yeah, you got three out of three, buddy. Nice. You're the current reigning uh, Tolkien or uh, antidepressant champion, or this <laughs> or that champion. So uh, for that, I salute you. I'm, I feel proud. <laughs> uh, so we'll include that link in the show notes. It's pretty funny, especially if you're a Tolkien fan. Uh, because some of those some of those uh, antidepressant names sound like they could be from the Silmarillion. It's it really is kind of scary to think about <laughs> how those things have coalesced. Yeah, for sure. Okay, sorry, John. They, I I, do I you took think a, that's how they name them. Like, do you think that antidepressant marketers and manufacturers are Tolkien fans? It could be. They open the Silmarillion uh, and are like, hmm. yeah, this sounds like that. <laughs> this sounds like Narmasil. <laughs> All right, continue. You're driving the, the train. You're the conductor. That's true. <laughs> the train. Down the track. We need a this or that theme song now. This or that, this or that. Are you going to pick this or will you pick that? I like it. It's retro. Do we want to talk about the story for tonight, though? I, I would like that, yeah. Okay. We probably should. I guess. We've lost. It's just us now. No one else is listening. <laughs> That's fine. We only make this for us, really. That's, that is true. It's kind this of a, a by, byproduct that other people listen to. It. Uh, us, <laughs> the audio recording is a is a is a is a byproduct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's us and uh, Gary and Ed and maybe Dynamo Mars. Maybe. Not so yeah, let's talk about the story. This is called "The Little Black Train" by Manly Wade Wellman, and I don't have the publication information for this one. I didn't write it down. Nope, I did not. I just read. Oh it. man. I was counting on you guys. Let's go to the Wikipedia. If there's even such a thing as Wikipedia. There, there was before the fall. So oh, I'm, no, instead I'm going to ISFDB. There you go. There we go. So this was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in August of 1954. I did know that. The cover price was 35 cents. I believe that most, if not all, of these short stories were published in that magazine. In FNSS, uh, yeah. Did they only yeah. cost 35 cents? Because that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's been collected a number of times. Did we all read it and the same way? Are hard to get. I read it from uh, the John the Balladeer. Um, I think it's a Ballantine book, but it's, it's uh, digital. 
right? It's the Kindle version. Bane. Yep. Bane. Oh, Bane. Yeah, you're right, Bane. Yep. Bird. Yes. How could you be so wrong? Uh, <laughs> uh, so we've all read it the same way, and I really liked it. Josh, uh, when we were bantering before the show, you talked about how it didn't fit into the mold of the last two stories that we had read. Can you elaborate that on that in the show for the listeners? Yeah. It, it, so the first two stories that we've read so far uh, follow the formula of John the Balladeer running across a, a, a small town or a settlement or a holler. And there was some backwoods wizard that was terrorizing the place. And he figured out they were a wizard and, and was able to deal with them somehow. Um, this time it's a little bit different. We don't have a backwoods wizard. We don't even really have a backwoods witch, not necessarily. Uh, it's the byproduct of witchery, I guess. But, uh, instead we have, uh, this lady named, uh, Donnie Carawan. Is that how you guys pronounce her name? Yeah. Yeah. Close enough. Or Donnie maybe. And she has been cursed to, uh, be taken away by this little black train. That is little because its cars are all coffins. Right. So yeah the the engine car I think is normal size. It sounds like it, especially from the effect that we get in the the song that John sings during this this whole story. Um, yeah. I yeah I thought that was really cool. It definitely has a different vibe to it than like coming into. It's still sort of a monster of the week kind of thing, but rather than like the bad guy of the week, it felt much more folksy. Like this is this like weird curse that's been handed down by a song that can be solved by a song. And it really fits in with that music motif that you two have been really hitting upon this season. Yeah, I think the music motif is even more pronounced, more prominent in this in this story. Luke, you're nodding. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I do. I think that, uh, like, the songs themselves, like, they are, they're not necessarily mythical books in this story, like, or they're not pulled necessarily from mythical books. It's almost as if they are uh, historical accounts, the way that they're kind of relayed here, which I think brings a little bit more like realism to the story. Does that make sense? I think so. Like, like the, the story, I mean, the songs are like the, the songs are still, uh, like portents of, of what will happen. And they're still spooky and spiritual, but I don't recall any references to like occult grimoires in the story. And they are like, it's, it's more John is searching for songs and he knows enough about uh, like the history of the land. It's less about occult history and more about like the history of just like what's gone on in this holler and in this area. And, and in this song, like what's the context for the song? Cause he, it, you're right. The, the song is the MacGuffin here. It's what drives John into the situation. Uh, into this high peaks country to begin with. Right. Right. And he's trying to collect not just the song. He doesn't know the lyrics. He just heard tell of a song, an interesting sounding song about a, a black train. Uh, 
and he wants to get the lyrics, he wants to get the music, and he wants to get the context for the song, uh, which is is pretty great. Like that's the treasure here that's being sought is is the song. I get, yeah, my feeling that I got from this was that in the past, some of those songs that he sang, they were written before him, but he kind of gets to be the writer for this one. Like he's scribbling it out, he's making the spell that will last forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like he's more powerful than we had been led to believe even in the last two stories. Well, can I ask you guys, do you think that John, I mean, I guess in the last little bit we find this out, but to me it seemed for a while to be nebulous in terms of whether John was the causative agent of the train manifesting or if he, if it was going to happen no matter what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Was he just in the right place at the right time, or did his singing of the song and investigation of the song summon the train? Was was that the last little bit of magical ingredient that was needed to to make the summoning happen? I think that that is, that's where I definitely hit. It reminded me of a Peyton Manning quote that luck is just timing and preparation and where they meet. And like John is prepared to be that magical ingredient, and his timing is right. It's the twentieth anniversary. It's midnight. He's at the party of the house of the person who was wronged and the, the wronger who is still like living it up and drinking stump whiskey with all of her quote unquote friends. Um, it just all sort of lines up and he's re- he's re- ready and willing to take advantage of it. What do you think, Luke? I, I agree with John. It seems to me that like the, the stars are aligning with how all of this plays out. And so, yeah, we get uh, John being uh, not necessarily like he he is both a recorder as well as a uh, narrator of the story. I do I do see that even at this like at this point in time, like he like within the story that he is influencing the the narrative arc of things. Okay. I don't know why I find it so hard to talk about these these Silver John stories. I, I I'm loving the shit out of them. Like they are so much fun, but it is really hard to kind of talk about this character as far as uh, is he the protagonist? Is he a more active agent, like a more omniscient agent? It's it's really kind of hard to tell. Like to what degree he's the He's the influencer of things. It's it's weird because it's uh, you guys are both familiar with the Jack Tales, right? Like, mm-hmm. so kind of a, an old English and and the British Isles kind of thing that was transported into Appalachia and then moved across the U.S. Like, uh, uh, Jack is this wily sort of. Um, uh, trickster character that you know some of the more famous Jack tales are are Jack tricking the the devil into not taking his soul. He was a wicked man and and he tricked the devil into not taking his soul and uh, eventually uh, wanted to die, but he was a wicked man, so he couldn't get into heaven. And the devil promised ne- never to take his soul, so he had to wander the land and and uh, the devil gave him a coal. Uh, from the fires of hell to light his way with, and that is uh, he put it into a pumpkin, and that is the jack o' lantern that we know today. Like uh, those those jack tales, the events of the story seem to happen around the character 
and the character just kind of moves through them. And, and I, whenever I read these, these John stories, John reminds me of Jack in a way that I can't fully articulate. Maybe as we read a few more and, and I have more time to think about it, I can get more uh, context for you guys. But it, it just seems like he is moving through this current and reacting to the things that are happening to him in in ways that, that other characters that we've read for the podcast haven't. Have you ever felt that way with anybody else? Like, I, I'm going to guess not with Conan or anything like that, but... What about Solomon Cain? Did he just have things happen around him and kind of react to it? Solomon Cain was more like he was he was definitely re- reacting to things and going crazy as a response to the things that were happening around him. John has more agency than Solomon Cain did, I think. Oh, okay. I I agree, and I I mean he he really is uh, he being John Silver John is a tall tale. Like this guy is different in that respect and we can maybe this is the right time like by the end of this story he is he's a christ figure that's telling uh the the woman in the story what she needs to do like the, like yeah. the donna like the donna needs to to straighten up and his offering like this is how your soul is saved, or at least like you're minimizing the probability that your soul is going to be taken. Kind of, kind of, kind of statements. Yeah. And and he basically says, "My work here is done." It really is like a mix of uh, kung fu, the television series, and like Jesus and like Appalachia. Like that's that's what Silver John is. He just he rolls into town or rolls into the story. He does the thing. And in this case, he hands out some moral statements and then he pieces out and he's like, I got, I got more stuff to do, man. Like my job here is done. Um, yeah. We've hit on this Christ thing a couple of times now. It sounds like uh, in the last two episodes and now in this one, what did you think about the allusions to maybe John being Satan in this story where we get the like devil came down to oh. kind of vibe? And, I love that. Yeah, the drunk guy has like brought this up three times. Like, oh, maybe you are the devil. Maybe you are Satan. Yeah, maybe you're the devil. Uh, I love so so for context. John in the beginning of the story is wandering through the mountains, and he runs across this guy who's been drinking, and the guy invites him to this party, uh, and and then he says something to the effect of, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't invite you. Maybe you're the devil. Uh, or no, 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 sorry, sorry, I messed that up. John says, maybe I'm the devil. Yeah. And the guy re- replies, uh, you know, the devil plays a fiddle devil and you've got a, a guitar. You've got a guitar, yeah. boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's are, we, are we in uh, Georgia in this story? Is that what High Forks country is? I can't imagine that this is not somewhere in North Carolina. Okay. Like, it just, it just, uh, I have admittedly never been in the the northeast corner of Georgia where uh, the Appalachian foothills are. So I don't know what the landscape is like, but throughout the Appalachians, the, the peaks are, are, are rounded compared to other mountain ranges like the Rockies. Right. And you don't often see these, these Rocky peaks. Um, and it just strikes me as, 
as being somewhere in the high country in North Carolina or Virginia. And maybe I'm pulling that out of nowhere, but that's based on my familiarity with that area. That's the landscape that sort of came to mind. I was curious about what you guys thought about that because when I looked up high forks country, I couldn't find allusions to that anywhere really in Google. No, I took it to mean that it was basically like deep within Appalachia and the higher, the higher elevation mountains, which is to say not necessarily Kentucky or uh, Western West Virginia or Georgia uh, or Tennessee, like we're talking about big, like the, the, the big mountains that are all across uh, Eastern West Virginia, Virginia, Car- like North Carolina okay. and like Western Maryland. That's like, that's, yeah. that's just what I envisioned was more like the Ridge and Valley with like big, big mountaintops. Yeah. Uh, that's, still I mean, that's covered. I, Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. The, just, just that, that we were, we were way high up. And that you could see for a good long ways, and that's yeah. getting close to space. Yeah, yeah, and that's a very different kind of uh, that's that's a very different kind of like Appalachia than what you see in Eastern Kentucky, like for sure. Yeah, and that's like it. It, it didn't strike me as down in the holler, which the other two stories that we've read have taken place in secluded places, either in a secluded community. Uh, which meant that could have been in a variety of places, but it was like a community cut off and they had this weird dude with a bird or the, the last, the last story was, you know, Vandy Vandy where you had a family and they were like in a holler and they were being antagonized. Those seem more cut off. This was, uh, just the overall, like the story is more encompassing. Like it encompasses, more families, more people, like a party going well, down here. It's up on it's up on a hilltop. People still walk down in the woods to get to this place, but yeah, I don't know. Like, well, I think there's something there too. There used to be infrastructure, right? There used to be a, a rail network, or, or at least a, a track that went through here, and presumably a stop somewhere. Like this was a railroad community, and presumably they were um, exporting timber. And and coal and yep. other things out of the region and and presumably this was a, a well-to-do place uh, compared to the other two locations that we we found Silver John in uh, and I one reason to to go back to John John our John's initial question about why I like this story and why I like train ghosts uh, as, as kind of a literary trope. Like trains represent something and they represent progress, right? Think about the, the, uh, uh, the United States prior to the transcontinental railroad and just the monumental effort that it took to get from the East coast out to the West. It, it's, it's unimaginable. Like I can't even fathom the challenge that it would be to get uh, a covered wagon or a wagon train, uh, full of families who were trying to get out of, say, Lexington, Kentucky, over to you know the 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 western parts of the the country. But then you lay these tracks and you allow these trains, which can reach speeds of up to thirty five and forty miles an hour, uh, along this track to get from 
coast to coast and and it's suddenly the distance is is reduced right the the dangers are mitigated it's progress it's civilization marching and when the uh the uh, the blonde lady, uh, Donnie, um, which is how I pronounced her name. It might be Donna, um, rips up the train tracks in my mind. That is, that is a specter of what actually happened in the U S right? Like many cities, Lexington, especially, and throughout Kentucky from like, there used to be a rail line that ran from Frankfurt to Lexington to Paris, Kentucky, and then North to Georgetown and down to Richmond uh, in the 1900s or the early parts of the 1900s and in the thirties and forties, those rails were ripped up. Like, uh, that represents progress toward automobiles. And so the train to me is this ghost of, uh, the, the past of progress, if that makes any sense. Like that, that is the, the former ideal of modern civilization and by ripping these tracks up, I mean, sh- she is trying to prevent the little black train from taking revenge on her. But when she rips the tracks up, in my mind, I was thinking about us as, you know, people in 2020 in the U.S. living in a, a country that doesn't have a rail system. <laughs> yeah, that's the part that I come back to when I hear about trains a lot is I would kill to have a train that went from here to Frankfurt. to I mean. I could hop on that and go out and do my work. Like that would be really interesting to me. It's almost like this denial of collective progress towards more individual progress. Like the automobile represents a very individual freedom, whereas the train seemed to represent almost a communal effort towards freedom. Uh, That was something that struck me when I lived in Omaha. They have museums to trains and stuff like that was a, a train hub, right? Omaha council bluffs area where the union Pacific really kind of got started and i think abraham lincoln gave a speech in council bluffs iowa that was like from here we're going to go west on trains and we're going to get people out into the the hinterlands of america so i i like what you're digging on there josh yeah it's it is an interesting little ghost aspect of america this this train passed and we hear these lonely calls in the night sometimes here in lexington like around 1 a.m you hear a train whistle going off in the distance and it is like this bygone era reaching out to you from the past and reminding you of how we used to do things. Well, and trains are, are just this, um, I don't know, like if, if dinosaurs and mastodons and large mammals are mega fauna trains are, are mega, uh, automobiles and mega you know, I've never, uh, I guess <laughs> like I've, I've never ridden on a, uh, like a commuter train necessarily like out in Portland. I went to Portland one time, uh, for a conference, Portland, Oregon, and they have an awesome light rail system to get you around town. And that was really fun to hop on, hop off. Um, but I've never taken like, um, a a train system from one city to another. Uh, but a few years ago, Ashley and I went to Colorado and there's a train, an old style train that you can ride from uh, Durango to Silverton. And it goes through the, the mountains uh, around about, you know, in, in this backwoods, rugged country that may, would make you feel like you were 
in the 1800s or, or early 1900s, I think that train wasn't running while we were out there, but we saw another like dinner train sort of thing. That was an old fashioned kind of, it looked like a steam driven, uh, you know, a coal fired locomotive and it just burst through the, the forest, right? Like it's the smokestack and sparks. And it's this, it's this monstrous sort of form that's coming through. And I can see how, um, if train tracks used to be there, now they're gone, but the memory of those trains still existed, uh, a, a ghost train could be a, a monstrous sort of thought for somebody. I identified with parts of this story just because when I was growing up in my hometown in Tipton, uh, there were still a lot of train tracks and there was like corn trains and coal trains that <clears> would run through town. And a lot of the tracks were... They weren't guarded, I guess you could say. Like, there weren't arms. It was just, like, the blinking light. And so we had dozens during my time in in that part of Indiana of fatalities where people just, you get so used to the train track that you just drive across it, and they drive in front of a train and get cream puffed. And they were trying to install the arms, but a lot of it was still just this flashing warning sign. And I remember my grandpa very specifically when I was learning to drive and he was helping to teach me, he was like, you always stop here. You never just go across. It was like very explicit instructions about how to avoid being killed by a train. And I remember being with somebody, a friend once and they almost drove in front of this train. And so it's like seared into my brain, how terrifying trains are that they are this 16 tons of locomotive that would kill you in an instant. If it got a heartbeat, it's like the bear of the automotive world. Um, they are kind of scary things. Yeah, I, I think so. And um, thinking about that, thinking about trains and train tracks as as scary locations in Kentucky, we've talked about <laughs> this. Um, we've talked about this monster, this cryptid that exists around Louisville, right? The Pope Lick monster, which is a, a goat man that haunts a train trestle in a uh, uh, Pope Lick uh, that crosses the this creek. And it, I don't know, before the show, I jotted down Pope Lick monster in my notes. And I don't know, do you guys think that the train tracks have any bearing on that, that legend? Like, is the Popelik monster some analogy for a ghost train? Some weird bastardization of, of that notion? Yes, I think it is. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, I've been, I've been quiet for a little bit. I've been kind of been soaking in what you guys are talking about here. Uh, and it meshes a lot of the, in a lot of ways with like, kind of where my headspace is. I, I think that the trains as spooky vehicles, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but when you, I hadn't thought about the, the, the Pope monster that, that you mentioned there, Josh, but this is a good opportunity to sort of bring up the, the concept of, of like liminal spaces and liminal beings and liminal, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, states. I think that's what a lot of this comes into. Like we're talking about here a story of 
you know, like the 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 afterlife and retribution and comeuppance within the the Manly Wade Wellman story, and that gets confounded with like standard ghost story archetypes. And so I think we can talk about uh, trains as like a liminal symbol, the same way that a car or there's there's all kinds of different types of of of, of symbols like that but i think that things like the popelic monster are also uh positioned where they are i think a lot of like weird investigators would argue like like i don't know the the, the people that created the television show hellier like the, like those types of folks they talk they talk about the concept of liminal spaces and liminal uh, sort of symbols within those documentaries if you've if you've seen any of those and i think a character or a creature like the Popelik monster is positioned such uh because it is this this spot where things are thin and there's this opportunity for you know the paranormal or the weird to sort of come through yeah, I, I think that train tracks represent in, in a way that that asphalt roads don't this passive sort of portal that takes you from point A to point B. And so you get on the train at train station, you know, at the train station down in Lexington, you, you get in uh, the, the R.J. Corman dinner train and it takes you out, you know, through the bluegrass and then maybe uh, if, if this is how it works, you get off the train and you're in a different place. Like you have done nothing other than get on the train, but it is, has transitioned you from point A to point B. And in this story, the black train is this agent that transitions you from your worldly existence to hell, presumably, right? Like it's coming for a sinner. It's not coming for a minimum. Death. Sorry. A minimum death, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Death at least. Like you're going to the afterlife and maybe you're going to hell. The bad, right. You're going to the bad place. I really like what you're hitting down or laying down here because this liminal space idea to me, that's sort of my dream with a train, I guess. Like it's one of my bucket list things is to get on a train and like pass in and out of consciousness as I leave one city and end up in another. And you can't really, you can't do it driving obviously because you would die. Uh, and I don't feel like planes offer the same opportunity. But so so here's another disparate idea. And this is something that I was thinking of in prep for the show. So I've got a toddler uh, and we've watched the movie Cars a lot. Have you guys ever watched the movie Cars? Oh, yeah. 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 OK. Yeah. OK. So there's there's a scene towards the latter back half of the movie where uh, the protagonist car and his lightning McQueen and uh, the, the lawyer in the small town that he rolls into go on a date and they're driving around and they're talking about uh, how the roads used to be different and the little podunk town that they're in used to see a lot of traffic but now it's not because of the interstates that are moving through and there's this james taylor song that plays and it's sort of this vision of like how things used to be and it absolutely encapsulates the idea or the thought or the feels 
of a road trip. And so you mentioned yourself, John, like just a second ago, like passing in and out of consciousness. You can't do that while you're actively driving. But we have all been as younger people on a road trip for some extended amount of time where it is this spiritual experience where you're kind of fading in and out. You wake up, you go into a convenience store or you wake up and you see you see fields of grain or you see like a stormy night or you see like forests of green, you, you see various things, but they're almost not real. And I think a train taps into that the same way that like, uh, old school automobiles or transit would, and not necessarily the way that plane travel does like airfare, of course. And, and I think that concept, like the journey itself as an almost spiritual, experience as part of what we're talking about here too yeah i've I've often wondered if this desire for a train trip is rooted in like my childhood road trip experience because as an adult you're responsible for the other other people going especially as like quote unquote the man you're going to be driving your family or whatever somewhere um so i do think it is chasing that high of like my grandpa was in the driver's seat and I could play Game Boy in the back and go to sleep and wake up and look out and see Cleveland and then go back to sleep and wake up and be in deep in the northern part of New York and see apple orchards everywhere and read a book. Like, it is this very, what was it you called it, liminal? Liminal? Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's like, it's like, like two, like one foot's in one, one state, one foot's in another, right? Like a wet, like a wetland or a riparian area for the ecologists out there. That's a liminal <laughs> state, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the pupa is a liminal state. Yes. Yeah, like it, those are, those are powerful Jungian symbols, right? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a bat biologist. Bats are liminal beings. There's a reason why bats are so freaking cool. The same way that like, the pupae of butterflies are so freaking cool. Like people like this is, this is visceral and trains are the same thing. Like they are vehicles, but yet they are symbols that are greater than that. Yeah. And in my, in my, uh, albeit limited research for this episode, I came across this image and the, the story of perhaps the most famous uh, ghost train in the U.S. And that is, I'm going to share my screen with you guys. Uh, that is the, I think it's called the um, uh, the Nashville, the old Nashville, maybe. And can you guys see this photo? Yeah. Okay. John, what is this yes. photo? You're you're a history buff. What what's going on here? What is this thing that I'm showing you? Is this Abe Lincoln's death train? This is Abe Lincoln's death train. Yeah, this thing is decked out in black drapery, uh, wreaths. You know, it's a black and white image, but you can imagine there there may be roses or something like that. Uh, all of these dour, very serious looking people surrounding the train. It, it's an eerie image, and the train evidently went through uh, from Washington, D.C. down to Springfield, Illinois, right? Is that right, John? It went a long way. His body was out and about for a long time. Yeah. And so I found some articles, some newspaper articles of the time that uh, said things about, you know, this this 
processional sort of uniting the the country everyone was united in mourning uh and if the train itself without a dead body on it is a symbol of a transition from living to death if it's a liminal space then the black train with a dead president a beloved wartime dead president on it uh is certainly a powerful liminal symbol and Evidently, this train reportedly can still be seen making its journey on the the day of Lincoln's funeral, that date, from D.C. down to Springfield. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, it was pretty neat to to read about. I'll be honest, I'd never seen a picture of it where it's like his portrait is bolted to the front of it and everything. Yeah, yeah, and evidently... There is a replica that that some enthusiasts slash historian like history fans have have built. And the cool thing about it is from the outside, it is a one to one replica. But the the bummer is that there were no photographs taken of the inside of the train. So they have no idea what it looks like on the inside. Another liminal space moving from outside looking Uh in and then moving to the inside and not knowing what that inside is looking like. Uh, which is which is a, a perfect sort of encapsulation of this complicated notion that we're we're wrestling with. I, I just I just love the story because it is this uh, in my mind. It's like a, a Christmas story in which John, the the uh, uh, balladeer is all of the um, ghosts that come tell Ebenezer Scrooge what he should do. Uh, in order to not be bound by chains in the afterlife. Yeah, this is. I'm looking at a map of this train's route. It started in Washington D.C., went up through Baltimore, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, New York City, Albany, Buffalo, Cleveland, Columbus, Indianapolis, Michigan City, Chicago, and Springfield. Like, that's a long time for a dead body in the 1860s. Yes, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. I, I have no idea what embalming was like in the 1860s, but I can't imagine that that Lincoln uh, smelled that great well, in those rolling cities, into Springfield. Yeah, those cities that I named, those are the stops where they would let people watch. And like my, my name or my my eye is drawn to Indianapolis. They stopped on April uh, April 30th. They allowed viewing from April 30th, 9 a.m., 1865 till May 1st, 1865 at midnight and then drove off in the train like that. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So this was, this was a multiple day journey. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in, in my search for, uh, examples of ghost trains, that was the most famous that I could find. But this isn't necessarily a ghost train, even though it kind of is. This is an expression of the Grim Reaper, right? Yeah, like this, this yeah. Is, the, the train is death itself. I mean, and this is this is. Uh, I mean, this is a, a Viking like send off of a of a king that's that's passed. You know, like putting him on the boat and setting it on fire, like a burning <laughs> pyre. This is a. This is a. a this is a pyramid like like these types of symbols and notions are are found across uh 
you know, different communities. Like, like in our society here in the United States, like, like trains have this strong, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, like civilizational element to it. And that's why I think we're all so, so drawn to it, but yeah, it is the grim reaper and it is, it's not just a ghost train. It's it's a symbol for, for a, a variety of things. Yeah. You know, something that I thought would strike a chord with you, John, uh, was the section where uh, Wellman talks about day trees versus night trees. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember that I, I part of the story? That. Yeah, yeah. Why did you think it would strike a chord with me in particular? Well, I remember you you telling me one time I sent you guys uh, a picture of, that I took of the full moon one night that was shining down through the the, the trees that are in my backyard. And you texted back and said, you know, that that image of trees, just just naked sort of branches. I think this was in like November or something. Naked branches uh, reaching up into the night sky just kind of elicited this primal sort of fear response in you. Yeah, it absolutely did. Uh, I remember that picture. I remember this discussion a little bit. And I think that we ended up talking about that being part of my like flatland country indiana upbringing where i could see everything for miles i lived in your your high graphics card uh in terms (laughs) in terms of being able to see around myself at my house but where you're from you in particular the way you've described it and some of the images you've shared it does frighten me sort of at a molecular level of this like closed in feeling and fingers reaching up out of the earth and clawing at the sky to take it away from you kind of thing where where i'm from like we had knocked it all down and we owned it all from from the dirt to the sky it was ours you know we we controlled it and where you're from and maybe even where luke is from i haven't seen a photograph of it necessarily but it's it belongs to the holler still it belongs to the mountain still and you're just a visitor, sort of. That's the feeling I get from it. And I know it's home okay. to you, and I, I don't want to like <laughs> project this horrified, <laughs> no, no, that's horrified feeling, but that that is like the the internal clock that starts ticking when you show me stuff like that, sort of. No, I get it, because uh, while I haven't spent much time in the flatlands of, of Indiana, uh, when we've gone to Cross Plains, I feel a similar sort of sort of irrational... Uh, it's not a fear necessarily, but it's like a, like a dread, you know, like I've seen enough, like I've seen Twister. I've seen images of, of tornadoes coming across the flat plains, uh, you know, and, and back home, those, those hills envelop us and those trees protect us. Like, I don't know. It's completely this. It's the opposite what, of what, what I'm talking you about. And, and I think you both have, have mentioned to me, like, when you've been in cross plains or when we've talked about Omaha or when I've talked about home, I think maybe it was Luke that said like, yeah, but God can see everything you do. (laughs) Yeah. That's my first experience of being out in the desert in like Southwestern Texas. I was an undergrad and we went to big bend and I felt naked. Like that was the only word that really encapsulated that weekend is like, I felt exposed to the world and, I felt like I was able to be seen by like just 
people, like other other humans, but also I was exposed to whatever was like higher up and looking down. Yeah, I that's that's exactly the feeling. Uh, it's a weird one, and and that taps into differences I think between flatlanders and 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 like mountain folks for sure. You know, it's a, it's a the, yeah. The passage that I, I was referring to here says, so uh, John is playing music for the crowd at this party. And it says the dancers had got to be few just in a short while, but the trees they danced through looked bigger and more of them. It reminded me how I had heard when I was a chap about day trees and night trees. They weren't the same things at all. And the night trees can crowd around a house they don't like, pound the shingles off the roof, bust in the window glass and the door panels, and that's the sort of night you'd better never set your foot outside. Uh, and I don't know, like, in my mind, that that is in your head, right? Like, that's not Evil Dead 2. That's not the trees literally coming through the cabin trying to kill you. It's just uh, in the daytime, they're gentle photosynthetic giants but at night they could be concealing anything yeah it's a bit more sinister there are fingers that are stretching out across the like the only expanse of like blue sky that you can see above you even though it's dark like those are those are impeding any level of light getting into you yeah yeah it's the that, last no, that's spooky dude like uh, that that <laughs> was a portion that, that really that spooked me out yeah the last thing I wrote down, the other thing that I wrote down was uh, this notion of laughing and dancing and yelling uh, when you're a kid near a graveyard to keep you from freaking out about the notion of mortality. Did that strike you guys? Did, did that part capture you the same way? Absolutely. That was that was another big part that was that was resounding with me. The the concept of like hooting and holler and trying to establish your 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 presence and i guess your your mortality in the face of like the scariness of the darkness it reminded me of cows and graveyards where like you make a game around cemeteries where you is that not a thing in other places (laughs) no i've never heard of this explain what is that you you count cows in a field as you drive by them and if you drive by a cemetery you lose all your cows I just played that. Actually, I, I mentioned at the top of the show when we went to uh, Georgia to to go to the the meeting where I got the cool stickers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we played cows and graveyards, and it was actually a Flatlander student of mine that brought the game up to me. So, how cool! <laughs> there we go. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've never was, heard of that before. It was my student from Indiana. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> how funny! Well, I I I guess I'm kind of. I kind of wonder about that because I've had a few experiences in Eastern Kentucky where it's way more mountainous than even where I'm from. And the cemeteries I saw when I was driving to, was it Prestonsburg? I think one time they were really different than the cemeteries I'm used to. Like, is, do you think that is a cultural thing? Like my cemeteries are huge, flat out in the open. There's hundreds of families all together and it's just like this it's a community thing like that's the cemetery it's, yeah it's a city versus it's an urban versus rural thing like in ashland which is a city in it's the city in in northeastern kentucky right ashland and maysville and in ashland the the city cemetery is is massive and sprawling but in elliott county 
uh, Sandy Hook, where I'm from, there's a ton of small family cemeteries that are scattered, you know, dotted throughout the county. Um, Yeah. Where I'm from, those are all defunct. Like, you can't bury people there anymore. Like, even (laughs) where I'm from, like, out in the country where I lived and grew up, you have to take your dead into the city and bury them there. There's no little family plots anymore, really. So in Arkansas, where I'm at, I mean, like, there are many, many, many small family, like, not necessarily family, but small community cemeteries that, yeah, you can get a plot, and it's it is a small like fifty to a hundred graves. Like it's a little holler position. When I was driving to Prestonsburg, that's what I was seeing. There'd be like this little elevated spot, and there'd be like a couple dozen crosses and, and headstones, mm-hmm. and they were decorated. And it's flanked by like twenty trailers and a few houses and stuff like that. And it's clear like those people are funneling towards. It's like this arrow, and they're funneling towards the cemetery mm-hmm. as they die and fill in the settlement that's around it. But that was it. Like that's the only cemetery I saw, you know, in any surrounding area. So I was curious about if there were any differences there. I have a, uh, John, you need to come. We need to spend a day in Elliott County together. Uh, in fact, all three of us do. Um, so when I was little, when I was growing up, uh, there was, a uh, so I live in a holler as I've told you guys before, and I had a friend named Cody who was in the same grade as me in class, and he lived kind of at the mouth of of our holler, so at the end of the road, uh, the the uh, the proximal end, I guess, the end closest to the main road, and I lived at the distal end of the the holler, so at the very end of the road, the the road terminates at my mom's house, and. So if you walk down the road or ride your bike, it's about a mile and a half, mile and three quarters between my front door and his front door. Or if you walk through the woods, it's a three quarter mile walk. Uh, so you can you can get there pretty quickly, climbing the hill and then going down this old uh, logging road that stretches between my house and his house. Okay. And if you do that, you climb a hill, you gain about a uh, I'll say about. 75 or 100 feet in elevation and then it flattens off on this this plateau this ridge that goes between our houses and up on that hill up on that ridge there's a graveyard that is full of unmarked graves full of graves that are marked with wooden uh markers and full of uh graves that have sunken in because they're they are so old that uh there were no you know, concrete or, or metal no vault. uh, vaults yeah. around the, the coffins. Yeah, vaults, exactly. Yeah, so there's no vaults around the, the coffins. And so the coffins have, like, collapsed in. And that's the part. It's, it's along the straight stretch along this, this trail. Uh, and that's the part you've got to conserve your energy because you've got to run past that thing. And as soon as you see the big oak tree, you start running. And buddy, you don't stop running until you get to uh, the bottom of the hill, because then you're almost there. And uh, uh, it, this part about hollering next to the graveyard, like I would never have done such a thing because uh, those those uh, ghosts and those skeletons and those zombies that might have been in that graveyard might have gotten me. 
Uh, so I want to be as swift and quiet as possible. I want to be the white-tailed deer through there. I don't want to be, you know, anything making noise. <clears throat> so uh, just kind of as a counterpoint to that, like, so where I grew up in western Arkansas, like, I mean, the the the, the concept of, like, whistling past a grave, graveyard, and that's something that's in the stories. Like, that's 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 not something that I have much experience with. Uh, maybe we've talked about some of this stuff with our, our, with our Cromptobers. Yeah. But like, so I guess, I guess two things. One, uh, there is a, a rich and storied, uh, history of haunted bridges wherein a mother and their child lost their lives crying and then you bridges. crying baby bridges yeah, where crying, you yeah, yeah. where you pull up to the bridge and then you park at least this is what happens like as soon as you cross the state line over into Oklahoma and you're at a low water bridge where this kind of thing happens next to the beer joint in Oklahoma where I grew up but you roll your window down and you scream lady i got your baby only you don't say lady you say a, a worse word and then you roll your window up real quick and then there's fingerprints on the window of of yes. the of yeah. the the mama trying to get to you because you've threatened you you threatened her baby who's died because you, you stole her I, I kid remember. Who, who who died like in the in the creek or whatever. I so remember that, the nightmare that that I had after you told us this. Story. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's one thing that is very much a whistling whistling past the graveyard kind of story where you're like trying to exact some level of control of yourself over the over the dead. You're mortal. Look at me. I got this control. That's okay. that's, that's case the first. Uh, in other instances uh when i was in high school well where i went like it was all like kindergarten through 12th it was all like a very small school like k through 12 was like 250 kids kind of thing but right up the road was six mile cemetery and if you were gonna fight somebody like if if, if it was the kind of kind of high school drama or middle school drama or junior high drama, whatever the drama was, if you were gonna like throw punches, <laughs> it was going down at Six Mile Cemetery. So you made an appointment and you whipped ass at Six Mile Cemetery. So really? if there was a, if there was a fight, it went down at the cemetery. I'll see. You. Like that's, that's amazing. Just, that's sundown. That's right. It was. It was like I will see you right after class today on Thursday, you know, March thirty first at Six Mile Cemetery, and that's how shit went down. And many times I was out at that cemetery, you know, to to like be part of this like this high school fighting kind of kind of experience of like. Oh shit! Somebody who was older than me, or somebody that I had their back—like it, it was a thing. Like that was that was a destination, and I do not think that it was a uh, like happenstance that we were meeting at the cemetery. That that kind of like vulgar, <laughs> to use a Pantera term, that vulgar display of power as as a high schooler was happening at 
a cemetery, I think that is very much in the vein of a high school, like punk rock, like aesthetic. And I think that's part of, I think that's all of that gets wrapped up in this kind of thing that we're talking about. That's interesting. I, all the fights at my school, my high school happened, uh, right after school. I guess we were like, you know, let's get this done so we can get home. And oh, no, no, no. All of, no, maybe I misspoke. All of this was right after school, but still at the oh. cemetery. So it was okay. like, so you leave school grounds and go to the okay, and then you go to the cemetery, and then the fight is happening like at three fifteen on a Thursday because the cemetery was just like a ten minute walk or a five minute ride in the back of a pickup truck to the like to the to the location. But it it didn't happen. It didn't happen like spooky at night. It happened like right at the end of the day, like right at the end of the school day. But still, it could have happened in a parking lot. It could have happened. We didn't have like city parks. We didn't like we had uh, the back of the gymnasium. That would have been a suitable place, right? Like I'll see your ass at the back of the gymnasium. At the bike. had like we had like a we had like a, a basketball team and a gym, but that's all the sports that we had. But we did have the back of the gymnasium, which was pretty secluded. Like I did a little bit of, you know, writing on walls and stuff back then. Like like that would if you wanted to get away with some stuff, you could get there. But why didn't you do that? No, you went to the cemetery. It's a weird kind of thing to say that was the destination when there's any number of other like archetypical locations that we could have gone to. I find that interesting because our cemetery is adjacent to our city park where I'm from. And if you were going to go sledding in the winter, chicken Hill ran right out the back of one of the, of the Catholic half of the cemetery and into the golf course. And there was also a game people would play where you would try to see the, the lantern man there. There's like a, conglomeration of headstones that when you turn around this sort of hairpin turn on the road that goes between the cemeteries when the headlights hit it it looks like there's this old ghost sitting in the cemetery with a lantern and it was all like fun and games for people where i was from to go out to the cemetery road i want i want a uh, a liminal spaces road trip where we go to all of these spooky places <laughs> <laughs> and and uh We'll record just it. Experience them, yeah. The lim- the road to liminalness. <laughs> liminalness. The road that to could liminality. be a good liminality. That could be a good uh, Cromtober uh, special. We'll bookmark that, dude. Yeah, save it. We- Timestamp. <laughs> so uh, this is awesome. We we've gotten a little bit out in deeper water from the from the story, but I think it all hits at the importance of like why this story rocks. Yeah. Did you guys have a favorite bit from the story? I, I guess my favorite bit is when they start to bring up the Doppler effect <laughs> and they say, yeah, that was pretty cool. It, it can't, it can't be based in witch magic because the guy's name was Christian Doppler. Like he's, he's clearly, <laughs> he's a normal scientist. Man. Uh, yeah. He's a holy man. Yeah, of course. He's, he's, he's part of the Christian science. Uh, I dug that and the fact that it comes into play with the way they play their music and the way that I don't know if I want to say that John defeats the ghost train or if John makes a choice about the ghost train is a better way to put it. But 
where he uses that effect to try and drive it away to save the uh, the woman. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. John's uh, he's a, he's a man of science, man of faith. That's a uh, that's, that's right. What he's doing, like he's he really has like the uh, <laughs> he's 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 a little bit liminal in that respect. He's got his feet in he both is. sides. Yeah. I was also intrigued by the fact that I think over the last two stories we said, oh, maybe it'll be a thing where at the end of the story a woman is sort of pining for John to stay in this mountain or this holler or this city or in her house. And I for this story, I was like, oh, this is definitely the one where there won't be any of that romantic action. But by the end of this, right. there's still sort of that like there's a woman that's begging him to stay. Yeah, but it's but it's it's some serious Jesus action though. Right, it's different. It has a very different feel, and it's because she's old. And I, this is a whole other can of worms. Oh, let's open it. (laughs) So, Uh, so so there are a couple of mentions made of her being past her her heyday. Right, she's she's no longer the flower she once was. That's right. But but she's described in words that are that are very sort of. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like she has hair the color of butter. She uh-huh. has eyes the color of a, a robin's egg. Um, like she is, she's desirable. I, I think, think she was desirable. Now she's okay. like painted to be desirable. Like out, okay. like there's statements that it came oh. like out of a, out of a box kind of thing. Yeah, like her her. To her. Her yeah. hair came from a bottle. Her face came from a box. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I I didn't make that connection until just now. Yeah. And I think that's I think that is an important distinction. Like we're we're laying out a lot of a lot of like raw lumber here, <laughs> but but to me that that is that is like John is uh, pined for by both younger uh nubile women in his stories as well as these women that are older and have made like poor moral choices like we're seeing we <laughs> I, I don't want, we're seeing like virgin and whore dichotomies here between between uh the first two stories in this story here that's a good point because even he at one point says like you invite men into your house like this you just you like, yep. you, you let yep. people in she's she's like stay after midnight like we're gonna get like things are gonna get real and he's he's a little bit taken aback by that by his response yeah even though he seems a little predatory towards younger women in our first couple of stories right yeah he does well. seem he does seem kind of tempted, right? Like to, to go along this biblical route. He, he is tempted, but he never gives in. And, and he certainly doesn't give in here. And maybe Luke is onto something. Maybe it's easier for him to give in because she is older. Do you think like, is that part of the can of worms? Uh, more the can of worms to me was the, uh, was the virgin versus whore thing just because it's so split across age lines. Like to me, that's a little bit funky, but it's there. I mean, to whatever regard, I don't know. We've only read three manly Wade Wellman stories. Maybe he changes course. I'm willing to bet he doesn't, but, 
but, but if, maybe, maybe if there it, is. If it plays into his sort of magic, though, right? Like, when you talk about these kinds of folk stories, a man who deflowers a woman, quote-unquote deflowers a woman, and then leaves town, like, that could lead to a powerful magic song that he would be a part of and maybe not be able to control. Whereas if he was with this woman, he's just one in a long line of lovers. Like maybe it doesn't have the same magical energy. Yeah. Maybe it's because she's not as virginal as the other two girls. Yeah. Well, I I think, I think like what, uh, I guess John said earlier, like he never gives in, like he never like leaves. He, he always, (laughs) he always leaves the ladies hanging. Like that's the way that these stories play out. He's like, no, I'm going to keep on, keep on keeping on. I got, I got more hills to climb and more, more roads to cover. Like he leaves things alone to his credit. Yeah. He's a rambling man. (laughs) Anyway, that that's all I have. Like the the Doppler effect thing was was really great. I I like this notion of this backwoods party that's fueled by a big barrel of stump hole whiskey. And I wondered if you guys had ever heard the term stump hole whiskey. I hadn't, and I googled it, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. And I I can't believe it's not a brand already. Of a tell me, a, tell tell us more about it. It it has to do with prohibition, so that gives us an idea of maybe when these stories are taking place little more concrete period of time where you would hide your still in a hollowed out tree or use it for storage it sounds like okay and and it would it would be stump hole whiskey where it was brewed in or distilled in or stored in a hollowed out tree okay is that so is that what you found i i didn't look it up um but thinking about stills, like my my mom told me this story about my my great grandfather who made moonshine back in the woods, and the important part, evidently, to the revenuers back then, was the worm. Do you guys know what the worm is? The part of the still that's referred to as the worm. Please tell us with the oak. Nope, it doesn't have to do with the oak. It has to do with the distillation process. And so oh. the worm is is the the part of the still. Uh, I should find you guys a picture, but I don't want to slow us down. But it's I'm doing this motion, this like circular motion, and moving my hand up and up. Like it's it's the what's what's the word for that? Like it's, it's the actual like coil of yeah uh, coil yeah of oh, yeah. of tubing that actually does the distillation, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so you can. Uh, if you have a barn or you have like a feedlot or something, you can effectively hide the rest of your still. Uh, and if they find the rest of it, you know, it's a, it's a tank, it's a, you know, whatever. But if they find that, that worm, that's the important part. And so that's the part you got to hide. Um, and I remember mom telling my brother and I about that, uh, some, some story about some people coming by, my great grandfather's house who were revenuers who were looking for uh, moonshine distillers. And uh, uh, he hid it, hid the worm, which sounds like a euphemism, but it's, it's not, he hid, he hid that part of the still and uh, they didn't have anything else to go on. You know, the rest of the equipment and supplies and, and corn and everything else were standard sort of things that you would expect to find on a, a farm back in Sirensville, Kentucky, back in the, the foothills of the Appalachians. So they went on. That's cool. 
Do you have any recipes from your great grandfather that we could enact? I don't. I don't. I don't. Unfortunately, I wish. I really wish that there was something like that. That that really would be like a familial holy grail. Yeah, that'd I be think. awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, nope. Nothing like that. Unfortunately. Someday. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe someday. Uh, I'll dig through the appropriate uh, box that. Uh, I mean, my my papa kept everything. And there are still boxes and boxes of of uh, books and notebooks and things that are up at the farm that need to be sorted through. You know, what um, he'll reach out to you in the liminal space. I hope so. I I would. I I don't know what I would do he if would uh, my my great grandfather pointed me in the direction of where the the famous recipe was. Like, man, I don't know. You would make it. I know. That's all. Do. That's uh, well. I, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, it's funny because when I started home brewing, Ashley said, "Sooner or later, you're going to start making moonshine." And I said, "Nah, no. I'm just making making beers and meads for my buddies." Uh, but I think we all know that I would totally yeah. make moonshine. Down your heart. <laughs> uh, that's all I got for this story. This I uh, didn't know how long this discussion would go, but uh, we've been going. For, for nigh on two hours now and um the material keeps flowing like that i think that's a testament to to wade wellman's writing yeah. and the depth of pulling in americana pulling in appalachian lore and pulling in this this awesome sort of adventurer character this archetype and we didn't even bring up the fact that that john gets into a fist fight and boxes a guy beats him with his bare hands in the story. Like we didn't talk about that, but, but this is the most, this is the a huge friggin' guy, uh, that, that gets beaten by silver John in this story. Like this is the most Howardian so far of the, the John, the balladeer story. Yeah, absolutely. He sets his guitar down and he, he like throws bones. It's, it's, it's serious. He gets like a mortal combat eight, eight hit combo in or something. At yeah. One point. We didn't even get to yeah. talk about murder ballads, murder ballads. Yeah. Go into it. Well, I mean, I, Luke gave me a CD once that he burned that was called murder ballads. And I know, he's, <laughs> I know he's, he's a Nick Cave fan. And I think his like eighth or ninth album is murder ballads, right? It's true. Yeah. It's true. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a class of song that's really interesting. And I would say this absolutely, this song that they're building throughout this story fits into it. It's a <laughs> class of blues song. Is that fair? Blues song? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it, it is the blues, but it's also, you know, folk music. A, maybe is better. A folk, uh, yeah. It's a folk music term. Uh, it's, it's a class that I've long been interested in. I've always loved like Frankie and Johnny. Uh, one of my favorite renditions of that is by Corey Harris, and he is a blues musician. I accidentally found an autographed CD of him in an old, in a record shop in Omaha when I lived there. Cool. I bought it, yeah. Uh, there's Stagger Lee. That's a classic. Murder Stagger Lee, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a big Stagger Lee fan. Uh, I think Luke likes it from Nick Cave. I do. It's, I just because it's so balls out crazy. Like it is a cra- That's a crazy. I love that. Uh, there's a really classic sort of Piedmont blues version of it that I like by uh, John Cephas and Phil Wiggins. That's really cool. Um, Delia's Gone, Johnny Cash. Is that a Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. 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 Long Got black, my submachine. Uh, Long Black Veil. Yeah. Uh, what are some other good ones? 
Uh, I mean, so the entire Nick Cave Murder Ballads album is, of course, <laughs> gold. Uh, so the thing that I like about Murder Ballads, though, just writ large, and the thing that I like about folk music writ large, as uh, a white boy that grew up in Arkansas and has moved to Kentucky, I love that there are these connections between continents and so you can find say uh murder ballads that are uh from the british isles that actually come over like any number of of the uh like the the nick cave songs have almost a british angle to them and that they come over and i think that's great yeah, I mean, I was going to say the there's a reason why that type of song resonates, particularly in the region of Appalachia, and that's because the, the area was settled by the, the Scots-Irish, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a cultural sort of uh, uh, ancestry that reaches back to those those areas in the British Isles. And the story, so I ha- the storytelling aspect, I think, reaches out yep. to us. Uh, I guess that, like, a storytelling song that I remember hearing as a kid that really got me into the idea of it is, like, Charlie Daniels, either Devil Gone Down to Georgia or what's the one where he's in the parking lot and he spews gravel at the Neo-Confederates? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uneasy Rider. No, that. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. Like right. it's a story. It's dressed up as a song, but he's he's playing it to you, and it's a story that he's unspooling, and that led me down this hole of all these different stories that we tell in the form of song. And murder ballads are a big part of that. It does seem to come from that Scotch Irish kind of place, but it has a huge heart in the blues community. There's just so many examples of it. Uh, if you've never dug into it, there's I think there's even a book about it called Murder Ballads, but. Um, what were you going to say, Luke? I was actually, I was looking for, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's quite a murder ballad, but the song Caleb Meyer by Jillian Welch. Oh, and that's her, a good one. Like her very, her very, uh, I guess it's her second album, but her second album is called Hell Among the Yearlings. And that opening track, Caleb Meyer, is like one of the best, and this sounds weird, but it's the absolute best like rape revenge murder ballad songs th- that's ever been ever been written and it is such yeah. a uh, compelling bit of poetry and it's, it's so stripped it's just it's, it's stripped down it's great it's it's got this very simple sort of chord procedure that that seems like it would be real easy to learn um, and it is a, I would say a superior version of I spit on your grave, right? Like it's, yes, it's perfect. It's perfect. That, that is an awesome song. And that's, that's, that's from what? Like that's from late nineties, right? I, yep, I was 98, thinking, oh, 98. Okay. 98. I was thinking yeah, like 2000, 2001. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that came out in 98, like, but this is just a testament to like these stories, these types of songs, these types of sp- 
spiritual sort of I, I don't want to be too goofy, but like, <laughs> then, be goofy, I, do it. No, Let I it mean, work. like these types of like spiritual experiences, like what's being laid out are uh, like they're even written today, but these are these are timeless, right? Like they go back to like. Like Manly Wade Wellman is just channeling the same the same shit that was being that was coming down the pike in the eighteen hundreds and the early nineteen hundreds to him that like informed the story and it just sort of is a testament yeah. to how these types of stories are big picture and archetypical. Even Elvis saying yeah. Frankie and Johnny like there's an Elvis murder ballad. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like this this uh this season's gonna turn me into like a total like Jungian fanboy and that's not necessarily the thing that that <laughs> that I hope that comes across. It's just that <laughs> these these are very uh strong stories that we can see like reverberations of like whether it's Christianity or like contemporary fiction like you can see this stuff and these murder ballads are a clear vehicle for that like yeah Yeah. uh silver john is is a is a is a jesus type dude yeah i even wrote down in my notes then i didn't want to go down this this alley but since we're here and i've had some bourbon we'll do it um so i wrote down birthdays in the bible equal bad and not necessarily even birthdays, but parties like think about uh, Salome's birthday and what she wants for her birthday in the New Testament. Right. Yeah. What is what is the the boon that she wants, Luke? The head of John the Baptist. Head, yeah, yeah. She, wa- she wants yeah. a head. <laughs> yeah. She, she wants this 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 object that symbolizes this purity of this person. And uh, in this story our our uh, uh female character uh Donnie or Donna wants John to stay with her even after he saved her from from the the fires of of damnation she wants him to stay with her and she wants to continue her uh sinful ways in in his eyes like nothing good comes from a party right in the bible and nothing good comes from this party either necessarily although although John does save her soul in the Nothing end. good happens after midnight. I, I think there you another, go. Okay. Thing, another yeah. thing that's cool about this is it, we've all been at the party where you've stayed a bit too long. Yeah. Shit starts to get sour, right? Like this is uh this is a bad this is a bad college party <laughs> type story here, right? Like like there's multiple remarks that Lots of people that headed out, but there was a handful of people that hung around. Like that's that's another that's another trope that we can weave into this. Like the the idea of if you if you hang around long enough, you're going to see something that's a bit more earnest than what you wanted. As for other yeah. things that are a bit more yeah. earnest than you wanted. Josh, if people want to find the Chromecast on the internet, where can they find it? <laughs> here, here. Good for you, dude. This is an episode that could go a while. I yeah. feel like. Yeah, you're ending it. <laughs> um, that's good. So if you want to uh, uh, get in touch with, uh, with us on the web, uh, we're 
on the internet at thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can email us. We're thecromcast at gmail.com. You can call us 859-429-CROM and leave a voicemail like our pal Evil Ed does from time to time. And we love hearing from him. We would love to hear from you as well. And uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Chromecast. Just search for us. We're there. We're there. You can find us. When you find us on those platforms, we would love to hear what you think about this Silver John story or Silver John overall. If you've read the stories yeah. and you got thoughts, if you think he's Jesus or if you think he's Satan, or if you've read them all and you're way ahead of us and you want to give us some insight, we would love to hear that. Uh, so, yeah, leave us a voicemail. Send us an email. Give us a tweet. Comment on Luke's Instagram record posts or, or <laughs> yeah, and uh, and let make us some know what you bread. Show, show us your bread. Yeah, yeah show us your bread. We're trying to doing... top Luke's bread. You can't. Sour mod. Try it. Try it. <laughs> Do it. You can't. Uh, I posted on Facebook while we were recording. Uh, tonight we're talking about Manly Wade Willman's John the Balladeer, and these stories are incredible. Do you have a favorite? Sound off. Uh, our pal Matt Cowan, who's been with us since the, the early days, said nobody ever goes there as a masterpiece. Um, Bobby D uh, suggested we share this at the Manly Wade Wellman Voice of the Mountain Facebook group, which uh, I said we're too shy to do. He's got to do that for us. Uh, Logan Whitney said that's hard. Uh, maybe Owl's Hoot in the Daytime, which I think is on our list. I think that's on our list. Yeah, I think it's, it's on our on list. The list or it's a justified quote. Yeah, maybe it's just justified. Is it? It could be another episode of uh, this or that. <laughs> uh, Brad Ellison, our pal who's been with us since the early days, said, "I always pictured him looking very much like a young Johnny Cash." He looks more like a young Walt Disney, though. Walt, well, no, that's that's Wellman himself, but oh, but not. He's talk- Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Oh no, so, uh, I absolutely use a young Nick Cave as my inspiration for John the Balladeer. Okay. Slick back okay. hair, ducktail kind of look. Yeah. Uh, our, our buddy Brad Ellison said, there's not a one of them less than very good, but my favorite would have to be nine yards of other cloth. It's got everything. John's well-fitted help meet a monster. That's not a monster and a musician that serves evil the way John serves. Good. Ooh. I think that I, I'm not sure that one's on our list for this season, but but as as with everything, we can always go back. Like, uh, luckily, this train that we're driving, uh, we can put it in reverse. We can pick it up and turn it the other way and go back. So, we hope we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Chromecast. Uh, we think this is a really cool story. We all three give it thumbs up, and we hope that you will ride with us on another train into the future. When we are going to toot into the next episode, which is going to be about what, Luke? It is going to be called Call Me From The Valley. Call and, Me From and, The Valley. And, and, and Josh's explanation says, John gets involved with an ancient feud that should have ended long ago, but somehow still lingers. Dot, dot, dot. Ancient feud that lingers. Yeah. So call us maybe on that Google Voice phone, phone and then please call us, us for please. Uh, call us from the valley here in the future, dude. We want to hear from you. We bid you all give us. A, yep, give us a toot. I, I cut give you off. Toot. I cut you off on the fart joke. <laughs> toot. Give, give toot. us a toot. Give us a toot. 
We hope you've all enjoyed this rendition of the Crowncast, and we will see you a little further along down the road of manliness. Yes, the manly road. The road of manliness. There's a little black train a-coming, coming down the track. You gotta ride that little black train, but it ain't gonna bring you back. You may be a barroom gambler and cheat your way through life, but you can't cheat that little black train or beat this final ride. Barroom ladies dressed in your worldly pride You've got to ride that little black train's coming in tonight Your million dollar fortune, your mansion glittering white You can't take it with you when the train rolls in Ready for your savior and fix your business right. You've got to ride that little black train to make this final ride. You silken barroom ladies dressed in your worldly pride. You've got to ride that little black train. It's coming in tonight. You may be a barroom gambler. Cheat your way through life, but you can't cheat that little black train or beat this final ride. There's a little black train coming, coming down the track. You've got to ride that little black train, but it ain't gonna bring you back. You did it, dude. Way to go. <laughs> Did it? You did it. We did it, Crown Cats. <laughs> <laughs>